0: The Guardian.
1: And Nadal is
2: through to the final once again here at Wimbledon. It wasn't the weight of expectation that was too much for Andy Murray, it was the brilliance of this man. The sounds of Wimbledon misery there. And as everyone knows, we've not had a men's Wimbledon champion since 1936 with Fred Perry. No woman since Virginia Wade in 1977. But it's not as if we don't care. Just consider the hysteria when a new talent emerges in the first round of Wimbledon. Think of the collective depression we get days later when the Brits crash out and it all goes wrong. We give millions to the Lawn Tennis Association every year to spend on grassroots tennis in the hope that more people will start playing and maybe a champion will emerge. But in this area, as in others, we just can't align our hopes to the cold reality of a competitive world. I'm Hugh Muir, and for this week's Focus podcast, I'll be looking at our perennial failure to achieve what we want on the tennis court, and what we learn from it. We'll look at where the £36 million a year given to the LTA is going, and find out if there are more positive signs for the future. I'm here at the National Tennis Centre in Roehampton, a lavish centre built for £40 million in 2007. But has it made a difference? Only two British men and women in the top 100 would suggest not. But is that the whole story? Well, Wimbledon's a special place, and this National Tennis Centre in Roehampton, not so far down the road, that's very special too. Very architecturally uh, notable, Uh, won won awards, I think. And there are courts as far as I can see, 16 courts, some clay, Uh, grass courts too, inside courts, Um, it's uh, almost like a a village of tennis if you like, you can see lots of lean young types walking around with their tennis bags on their shoulders, Um, a hive of activity, lots of coaches, um, people getting one-to-one tuition, Um, it's an extraordinary achievement just to get this place here whether it actually results in any uh, achievement on the tennis court, well that's still to be seen. I've come inside now to watch some of the practice sessions, some of our brightest hopes training under expert supervision and it really is an extraordinary facility, um, six absolutely pristine courts, there's a lot of work going on here and I have to say as a, an amateur player myself I'm pretty jealous. So I'm, I'm with Carl Bond, one of the rising stars of uh, British tennis, Carl tell me a bit about your career so far. Uh, It's been good. I've uh, concentrated more on the ITF circuit and uh, I'm up to about 31 now. So I'm just looking to improve my ranking there and um, establish a men's ranking, really, get my first points. Tell me about your training. How tough is that? Pretty tough at the minute. I do about two one and a half hour sessions of tennis and um, same in fitness, really, two one and a half. So by the end of the day, it's pretty brutal, really. That's of course they can teach you the technical stuff What about the mental stuff because it's so important How do you learn that? You learn mental stuff just through experience really and um, yeah it's, it's more life skills really and um, you know no experience is a bad experience so everything you can learn is a bonus each, each day on court you learn something new and you, you have to deal with it I've caught Luke Bambridge he's just about to go on the court uh, for today's practice so tell me about your career so far what's the highlight been?
0: Um, I played junior Wimbledon last year I won a round of doubles last year with Kyle. I'm on top hundred ITF now, so that's that's good. We came fourth in the world last year at World Team Cup. What is your what's your plan? How far do you hope to go? Uh, I would like to make like top five in the world or win Wimbledon. That's my that's my main aim.
2: How important are these facilities? They're brilliant facilities, but yeah. uh, players from countries that
0: don't have facilities as good as this do well. In some cases, do better or we can train on grass, clay, whatever we want to, to get used to the surface. I think what other countries have that we don't necessarily have is the temperature and the climate. This hasn't been open long enough for us to, to judge how if we've made a player out of this place or not, so hopefully me or George Morgan or someone like that can, can be the first out of here.
2: I'm with Martin Weston, the top British coach, and you must every year hear people say, why don't we do better at Wimbledon? What's your take on it? Well, I
3: think it's a question of putting things in perspective. It's very very difficult for, for people that don't have a very in-depth knowledge of world, te- world tennis to really understand, first of all, the size of the sport and the fact that Wimbledon is the absolute number one event with the other three Grand Slams. So i think you know to to have one player like we do challenging for the title a British player in Andy Murray who has a genuine chance of winning is outstanding you know someone that I've certainly seen develop and grow up in my in throughout my career who was coached by our Davis Cup captain uh, Leon Smith you know that is that is something not to be underestimated Um, yes absolutely we would like players pushing him uh, closer to his ranking and we've got work to do we've got two boys in the top 10 in the world in the juniors both have a chance of winning the junior event. We're building from that.
2: Well, what people know about Andy Murray, um, and maybe it's fair, maybe it isn't, is a,
3: a crucial point, he went abroad. Yeah, he did. He did. He went abroad. And I'm sure that polished, helped polish what was already a diamond talent into something very, very significant. We certainly don't... Uh, stop any of our players taking that option you know we've learned from that we don't mind where they train and who they train with if if it works then do it you know we want to be better we are killing ourselves to be better pushing hard to be better.
2: What about making that transition because in uh, you know, many ways you deserve a pat on the back and that we know that the state of junior tennis is actually quite good but what about when people try and, and progress into the senior tennis
3: that's where many of them don't seem to come through absolutely I, I think that's a very fair statement a uh, few things the few things that we've you know we've we've had to learn actually what that transition is so that the days of 17 year olds winning men's tournaments are gone now that transition is long it is hard um, it is extremely physical it is extremely tough and we have to be patient um, we have to give these guys um, the support they require we have to plan and periodize their training and make their training increasingly tough how do you feel when you see one
2: of a former player saying they have it too easy. We've got a marvelous facility here but that that in a way that's
3: part of the problem. It's, an, it's a hardy perennial you hear it a lot. Or, think does it make you tear your I hair out? I think I think I think the answer is that is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, isn't it? I mean, um Look, it it is a phenomenal facility. I certainly don't think that uh, it doesn't stop me working as hard as I possibly can in what I'm doing. I don't expect it to with the boys. However, what we also have to make sure we do is that we send the boys out and about into the big wide world, and they need to experience it tough. Tennis in this country is very much seen
2: as a middle class pursuit. Members clubs, gin and tonics, strawberries and cream on Murray Mount. And that's the case here at Queen's Club, where the Aegean Championships are taking place, the traditional Wimbledon warm-up. It's raining here, so people are rushing out of uh, Queen's Club, but I've got someone with me here who was watching Murray. Why do you think we can't get a a Wimbledon champion?
0: I think maybe more money ought to be put into sports in schools. State schools don't have tennis courts, and uh, that would encourage people.
2: Do, Do you think that they would want to play if they got that chance? I'm
0: sure they
4: would. It's a brilliant game.
2: Let me ask the question to you. Why do you think, with all the effort, with all the money, that we're not able to produce a champion?
4: I feel that we need to go abroad. I think somebody else would be able to um, perform to the standard that we believe that we could through tennis. I know it's a British game, but I believe that you know somebody else from abroad would be able to do that.
2: Our tennis players just don't have that attitude that yeah they want to win but they just haven't got that like killer instinct
4: that yes this is going to be mine i think the competition is so high now that they feel that they have lost within that that They've that want way, to really. they have they lost their way. i had no time to make sense why did you put my- the elite nature of tennis
2: in this country has found an opponent in the form of comedian, author and broadcaster Tony Hawkes who co-founded the Tennis for Free charity in 2005. And Tony, we're, we're in the champagne bar here at Queen's which is probably the complete opposite of what you think tennis, the image tennis, tennis should have.
5: Absolutely, but it was your fault because you invited me here.
2: The Guardian has a, a, a regular presence here, as you know. <laughs> um, you go to a lot of tennis and you'll have picked up just the kind of desperation that the public have to find a champion. We throw a lot of money at it, a lot of effort at it. Why can't we find one?
5: Well, I don't know why we want it that much. I think that it's the wrong, in a way the wrong question because that, that's what's leading us to, to spend all this money in the wrong way. This desire to have a champion is making us mess up because actually what we really need to do is to just get Thousands of people playing the game to a good standard and enjoying it. And that would be a far better thing to have achieved with the money that we have than to have a champion. So if you have a champion, so what? If nobody's playing the game around the place, all you've got is you just say, well, we've got a champion. If Andy Murray was was to win Wimbledon this year, I don't believe it would really make very much difference to the British tennis because there's no infrastructure in place for this, the popularity to, to trickle down and for the game to be played at grassroots around the country because there is there is a disincentive in the form of it will cost you four pound an hour to go on a tennis court but with all the money that's generated by the game there should be a way to,
2: to ensure that a level of trickle-down so people are put more play people are playing at grassroots
5: Absolutely, and the, the LTA will spend something like, I think, 30. What they say is it's something like 13.1 million pounds a year goes on performance tennis, you know, on giving money to players at the top level. Now, currently, their spending on what goes on in, in British park courts is virtually zero. If you're if there are some park courts somewhere that nobody's playing on, there are no initiatives to go and introduce the people that live near those courts, to teach them the game, to do all these kind of things. I've had this scheme, Tennis for Free, going for eight years. They want me to, to disappear without trace. They want, they want this idea to, to fail as far as I can see because they will not get behind a real grassroots initiative. But surely you're, you're
2: their route to tackling both of these problems, both grassroots tennis and elite tennis, because presumably one would feed off the other.
5: It's a no brainer, isn't it? You get more people playing the game, you organize tournaments in public parks, you could book performance squads in there. There are resources that are currently underused for the sport, and they've got a huge, huge, huge bucket of money, and they won't spend it. Now, I've talked to politicians about it, I've talked to everybody about it. When you talk to them, I recently met with Jeff Newton, the head of the Tennis Foundation, and he's saying to me, you can't make tennis free, it's not sustainable. Well, we've been running this scheme for eight years, and it is sustainable, and and I turn around to them and say, well, what makes the National Tennis Centre sustainable? You spend £40 million building a centre, why does it have to be sustainable with no subsidy at the bottom end, yet you can spend as much money as you like at the top end, and that's never questioned?
2: And what do you say to the crowds agonising on Murray Mound, um, desperate to have that champion? Should they just cool down and uh, enjoy the tennis?
5: Well, you know, how often are they? And who are those crowds, anyway? They're not people from estates in Bolton or, you know, or from around the country. We know full well who the people are at the Wimbledon crowds. They're the people milling around from a tiny little class of people who roll out two weeks of the year and are suddenly interested in tennis and, for the most part, Aren't they interested the rest of the year? Ah! <laughs> you sound like a girl Toby,
4: come on. <laughs> I know mean, you sound like a girl, come on. <laughs> no, oh, come on no, no one says that in the Nadal. Come on, uh, come on. Of course
2: Wimbledon's Britain's great contribution to the world of tennis. Some say it's the best tournament in the world. And for two weeks all eyes are focused on south-west London. I'm in South London now, but I'm in South East London, Camberwell to be precise, where the Southwark City Tennis Club is putting locals through practice drills. And it's all happening in one of the most deprived areas of the country, in the shadow of one of the most run-down council estates. The game's the same as played on the lush greens of Wimbledon. There the similarities end. Tom Wulichuk, you're director of the social enterprise element of, of the club here. How important is the location here? We're, we're, we can look across and see the, the estate very close to us here. How important is that for
0: the mood of the club and, and, and what you do here? Yeah, I think it's key to what we're doing here. There's um, uh, Traditionally, there's never been any tennis provision here at all. So we were the first ones to come along and offer this to the local community. And really try to keep it affordable and um, welcoming to everybody to come in and there's a, a mix of people so I think our, our location is key to defining uh, how we are and how, how we've been running.
2: How do they react when they're in tournaments and they're playing against kids
0: from you know, from the private clubs and from much um, you know, much more affluent backgrounds? It's it's tricky for us um, there's no question that there's a big jump in um, some of the environments for for some of the kids here to, especially to compete away from their home venue they're not used to it, it can be quite stressful I think for them that the whole environment and that can only be overcome with experience uh, and a lot of competitions, even by the age of 10 they they should uh, really ideally be uh, um, competing abroad as well and of course that, that brings financial connotations to it which is um, something where we're trying to, uh, to mitigate as best we can, but, but it, it definitely exists. The LTA have got a few, Bob. How much help do you get from them? I would say probably in what we're trying to achieve, we would deserve more emphasis than we're perhaps currently getting. But to be fair to the LTA, I think things have improved over the last few years, um, along with the Tennis Foundation, what they're trying to achieve. So we, for example, we get a a grant from the LTA of £10,000 to contribute to our programme and to to allow us to keep it affordable and reach different sections of the community. Um, One wonderful thing that is happening here is we're finally getting some uh, floodlights to allow us um, to to work all year round with the kids, which is, is so important. Do you think the LTA ever look at a club like this in an area like this and think, that's where we might get our next champion from? I think they're aware of us. My feeling is they haven't sort of prioritised this kind of venue. And I, I think it's, it's the way we're doing things around a social enterprise, involving the communities, lots of volunteers, keeping it affordable, is something that could be replicated in quite a few park venues. And, and that's something that I would be keen to promote and I would like to see the LTA giving, giving more emphasis to. I'm here
2: with Abdul here,
0: one of the players at the club. And is
2: it a leisure thing for you, or do you see yourself going on and playing tournaments? How
0: far do you think you could go? I started playing properly around about the age of like 14, and I've managed to get up to like a regional slash a national standard. So I'll just keep on going to see how like far I can get. You must have friends. Um, what's it? How easy is it for
2: you to persuade them that they should come and play tennis? Because it's not an obvious thing for them to do, is it?
0: It's not really easy to uh, recommend a people into it because it's kind of got this like stereotypical thing about it being for middle class people and above and it's kind of got this imagery that like some people are, are put off by it
2: i'm now joined by the head coach here umran ali this is not the kind of area most many people associate with a game like tennis well, how much talent do you see here
1: I see masses of talent. I've worked at a couple of private tennis clubs and one of the things I feel that working in a community like this is a lot of the kids are have, are very driven. When they come to the courts, they're quite happy to spend the whole day. There was a, a structured session that ran for the whole day. They do it and even once they finish the sessions, a lot of them spend their time on the courts, around the club. When I was at the private tennis clubs, that never happened. The minute the kids finished their sessions, it was about going back home probably going on the internet or hanging out with friends or going to a different activity. I'm very driven, I'm very tough with the kids and in a lot of different environments that's just not acceptable. I think kids in this society have got, it's very much about things coming very easily. If they're not comfortable with something, their parents pull them out of it because their parents say, you're not enjoying this experience and if you're not enjoying it then... I don't want you to have that experience so I'm going to take you out of it and not realising that life is full of experiences you're never going to enjoy but you have to deal with them, do them and that's how you develop and become a much stronger human being. Tough talking from the Southwark City Tennis Club there. And joining
2: me in the studio to talk about the issues raised is The Guardian's sports news correspondent Owen Gibson, Adrian Rattenbury, the UK director of RPT Europe, a training and coaching setup based on the Spanish model. And a Labour peer and chair of the House of Lords and Commons Tennis Club, that's Baroness Billingham. Hello to you all. Before we start, we should point out there's one empty chair here. We did ask the LTA to join us, but neither Roger Draper or any of his staff felt able to do that. Uh, we put a series of questions to them, and they've sent through some notes that we'll be referring to. Um, they say, We've achieved a lot, but there's still a lot more to do. The blueprint strategy is right, and we're on course. We share the frustration that there has not been more progress in the men's game, but the overall trends show we're heading in the right direction. Our focus is on grassroots and participation. Baroness Billingham, I want to start with you and and the key question here, I suppose. As a nation, we yearn to have a tennis champion. We've the will, we've the money, we've got the facilities, and yet we can't get what we want. Why is that?
4: Well, (laughs) that's a very good question. Uh, but I, my question uh, that i would rather answer is i'm just not i'm no not only interested in producing wimbledon ch- champions so of course that would be wonderful but you can't produce a wimbledon champion unless you have got the right foundation and frankly where the priorities of the lta are at the moment are all in the wrong direction well, it's uh, grassroots tennis it's kids from backgrounds who wouldn't normally play tennis who we've got to get into the sport. Ask anybody in the street, what's your impression of, uh, of tennis? And they'll say to you, it's a middle-class sport. You know, the clubs, etc., etc. So Roger Draper uh, can bat on as much as he likes about we're going in the right direction. As far as uh, producing uh, top players is concerned, well, clearly, it's still a huge embarrassment. I mean, we are the second wealthiest uh, country uh, as far as funding for tennis, and yet we are abysmal. When it comes to the league, I mean, look at some of the other countries that have got not not a tenth, not a hundredth of what we've got to spend and yet are producing players.
2: But if they're doing it wrong, they've been doing it wrong for a long time. And given that we care about this, why have we allowed them to to carry on doing it wrong for so long?
4: I think we've been I think we've been hoodwinked to a certain extent. I mean, when Roger Draper came into office five years ago, he made a whole series of of promises and pledges. And we took him at his word. Uh, But those pledges, I mean, he's missed all of them by country mile. He's included, for example, I mean, there was one very bizarre situation when he was in front of us in the House of Lords when he claimed that uh, we were doing much better than we were thinking. We hadn't just got one man and one woman in the top hundred, but that we could include doubles. Now, I mean, when you've got a director, a chief executive, using that sort of disinformation... You know, where where do we start to believe what he's telling us?
2: Adrian, the figures are truly mind-boggling, aren't they? £30 million given to the LTA by Wimbledon and a further £26.8 million given to them by Sports England. Are you happy with the way that money's being spent? Surely not.
6: <laughs> Absolutely not, no. Uh, I mean, the bo- bottom line is that we, we don't have enough players. Um, how How they can say that we're going in the right direction... I'm really not sure because all the statistics show exactly the opposite, so you know we, we have less players than we've we had before we've got less uh, less courts than we had before i mean the the lTA made reference in their whole sport plan to the sport England statistics of thirty three thousand public courts, and the lta's own statistics now say ten thousand courts um, and last year's uh, annual um, plan from the LTA said 23,000 courts in this country, and only this week Roger Draper said that's 22,000 now. So we've lost another thousand courts in a year. So, so how how we're managing to do this, I really don't know. For the LTA to turn around and say we're going in the right direction,
2: they do talk a lot about their new um, participation campaign called All Play, and they're spending 19 million on that. But you know a lot about the setup in Spain, don't you? What's different there?
6: The big difference there is there's no LTA. I mean, there is a federation, uh, but they have a total budget of about €4 million a year. That's total. That's not just for their their performance players. That's for the whole country. Uh, And I think because of that, the clubs, the academies, uh, actually are left to do their own job and to do what they think is best. Uh, And that really produces the levels of competition between the academies. I mean, five full-time academies in Barcelona alone Uh, You know, probably headed up by Emilio Sanchez. Uh, But obviously, if if you don't like to go there or or you don't like the way they teach, you can go to Bruguera's or you can go to the Total Tennis Academy. You have choices Uh, and that choice produces competition. So Emilio knows if he doesn't produce players, then, you know, those players are going to go down the road and they're going to play at the Total Tennis Academy. I
7: well, think Owen wants to come in here. Do you think then the, 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 the money, the £60 million a year that we always talk about as going in, into the game, in a sense, you, you'd agree that it, that it promotes some sort of complacency, in a sense, and, and sort of allows the, allows the individual clubs off the hook, to an extent, because they're... I, I,
6: don't, I don't think it's necessarily complacency. What I do think it gives them is control. Hmm. So with, with money, you have power. So irrespective of whether you agree, for example, with the mini-tennis competition structure, if you're a tennis club in this country and you're affiliated to the LTA, you have to do that program, because if you want to come back and ask for assistance with your blood lights or whatever in the future, then you will have to be towing the party line, otherwise you're not going to get any support from the LTA.
2: I'm interested in because
6: that money doesn't exist in Spain. The clubs have to be more proactive and more commercially run and more effectively run. Otherwise, they'd close down. We rely on funding.
2: Of course, it would be good to have a strong centre if there was good advice and and good administration coming from that that centre. But uh, for, you don't sit, seem to think that there is. And I'm interested in what you say um, about um, the, the people feeling that they can't quite criticise the LTA or feeling that they have to do things the LTA way? Because, Baroness Billingham, you did say, I think, earlier in the year that there were many people who felt that they just couldn't criticise the, the um, LTA without fear of perhaps being punished or, or, or of not getting the help that, that they desperately need.
4: Well, you're absolutely right. We wrote a report from the House of Lords and Commons, and um, we felt that, uh, I mean, we couldn't change things at the LTA. I mean, we didn't have that in our gift, but we could ask the questions that the tennis-loving public wanted asking, and we asked them. But of course, we did have an inroad into them, more, stri- more specifically, because the government had given them 26.8 million for grassroots tennis over a four-year period, and we felt we were entitled to know uh, where that money ha- and how that money had been spent. But subsequent to that report, m- oh my, my, the, the mail I received from people uh floodgates were opened, you know, saying that they didn't criticize the LTA, because they feared that they would be, uh, that the LTA would be vindictive, they wouldn't get their funding, their children would be put at a disadvantage. And so it goes on. Adrian is right. It's almost a Stalinist regime that the LTA have because they have all the money and therefore they have all the power. And there's no there's no devolution, there's no big society like David Cameron wants us to have, it's all there in one pocket. So until that's broken down, I fear we're not going to move forward.
2: Owen, I, I mean, do you think that's right? I mean, it I almost mean- sounds like a regime of fear.
7: I mean, I think you have to put it in context of other sports, though. And in other sports, often we call for more sort of unity of vision and we call for more of a sort of a, a, a top-down system in, in football, for example. Part of the problem is that there's too many uh, different organisations constantly fighting and, and nobody taking any responsibility. So, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have an overall strategy. Um, what's important is it's, it's implementation, if you like. And if you listen to Roger Draper, he'll tell you that they're belatedly making progress with participation, that, that park tennis is made, that they are They've got more sessions in parks, that are better school club links, and all these things. But for me, the thing that, strike, that, that sort of shines out is that even then, their own uh, blueprint update, which they're on this, they're on this ten-year strategy plan. They recently um, did a sort of half halfway through uh, audit and they said even then there the number of beacon clubs which are the clubs that are supposed to sort of reach out into the community to offer to offer sessions of free tennis to have good links with the community they, they were far too slow in rolling those out um and for the amount of money going in um it just seems like the return is too low you know the um they can point to areas of of progress and there are areas of of modest progress but in, ter- in return for the amount going in it just seems to be um... Far too modest.
2: But Adrian, people who love the game will feel they have quite a lot to contribute to it. And if they don't feel that they can criticise or critique the LTA because they'll be punished for doing so, that's not a healthy situation, is it?
6: No, absolutely not. I think, you know, picking up a couple of points there, you know, the beacon sites in the parks, uh, I mean, a number of those beacon sites that are even listed are still not up and running and active. So, you know, there's a huge discrepancy in what's really going on and what the numbers say are going on. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things. But I think the biggest, the biggest problem, really, is the LTA are not actually responsible to anybody. Um, you know, they are getting their £30 million a year from, from, from the All England Club, uh, and the, the £26.8 million from Sport England. But even then, Sport England seem to not want to hold the LTA to account or just believe whatever numbers the LTA put in front of them.
2: Baroness Billingham, is is,
6: is there more that we could be
2: doing to to help Sport England hold them to account?
4: Oh, well, of course, we should direct Sport England to be much more uh, transparent. And we said that in our report. But if I could just come back to something that Adrian's made me think about. You know, the whole problem as far as grassroots tennis is cost. And if you're going to build beacon sites, which they are doing, but then the courts are of something like eight or nine pounds an hour... How are are children from ordinary backgrounds going to be able to afford that? No, the way forward, I think, is called Tennis for Free. And it's wonderful because 80 local authorities have now pledged the use of their courts for no no payment. So we could put in volunteers, all the things that the big society and David Cameron, who's the president of the Law and Tennis Club in the House of Lords and Commons, all those things, and we could, we could have children there on a weekly basis. We want kids from all backgrounds to have an opportunity. And, of course, that's what does happen, uh, as Adrian will know, in Spain. Let me
2: tell you a couple of things the LTI have said. One um, is about their Beacons programme, which they say has doubled in size. There are more than 100, 130 sites around the country. Um, but going back to Tony, Tony Hawks and his free tennis program, um, uh, scheme. I think you're, you're involved in that, aren't you? But uh, the LTA tell us they've offered significant financial support to Tennis for Free projects, but that uh, this has been rejected.
4: Yes, I knew they'd say that. Uh, yes, I am very, very enthusiastic, and I'm happy to say that I've got a wonderful new uh, compatriot in this, in Judy Murray, who is, is completely convinced that this is the way forward and is, wants to do the same sort of thing in, um, in Scotland. Now... Um, The lta offered an amount of money which would have would have uh would have been able to uh, fund 10 centers we're talking of 80 centers so by not offering the full amount so that the project could be properly rolled out with qualified coaches with tennis balls available to be uh, and rackets and so forth it was it was an offer that was doomed to fail you've got to give us the whole amount and you've got to back us And you've got to give us two years so that we can prove, prove ourselves.
2: Useful all the while to to bear in mind what we were promised. And and Owen, in 2008, Roger Draper said that we'd have five players in the top 100 (laughs) by 2010. Now, we've got promising youngsters like Luke Hmm. Bambridge and Kyle Edmonton. We heard from them a bit earlier um, at at Roehampton, Um, but certainly not five in the top 100. Uh, Owen, was that nonsense from the start?
7: Well, there's the difficulty in Roger Draper's position in that he, in, in, now he seems very, very keen not to focus on the men's top 100, and of course at this time of year. We always want to focus on the men's top 100, and what that tells us is that, you know, Andy Murray stands alone. And he keeps pointing to the juniors. Um, We keep saying, but the juniors aren't guaranteed to come through. In fact, you know, uh, history would tell us that they've got a very small chance of coming through. And he says, well, don't judge me until they're 24, which would give them another five years, effectively. Mm. So we're caught in this kind of, you know, push me, pull you, whereby he keeps saying, jam tomorrow, and we keep saying, well, look at the money that's going in today. And um, I think that. The truth is probably somewhere in between of course we shouldn't judge it only on the men's top 100 but that's got to be a major factor because that's how our tennis is seen around the world and that's ultimately the product of all that money that's Mm. going in at the bottom and I think I think one of the things that Baroness Billingham said which is absolutely right is this a lot of it comes back to this argument about how tennis is perceived and how it is how it's perceived by by youngsters, and how can we get kids into the sport who at the moment are obsessed with football and, and aren't likely to be taken along to a to a posh tennis club by their parents? And um, if you speak to Roger Draper, he will say no, the image is changing. Tennis is now seen as a very cool sport. Look at Rafael Nadal. Look at the event at the O2. Um, but that's not necessarily the um, the evidence that we see on the street. If you like, you know, you don't you don't get the sense that um, a lot of those tennis clubs to which we're referring. Really are throwing open their doors and saying sort of come one come all. They still feel to retain that that middle class um, white middle class feel. Mm. Adrian,
2: of course, the grassroots is really important, but the uh, elite performance is quite important as well. And we do quite well at junior level, don't we? Um, what's your take on why those successful juniors don't then go forward and become successful professional successful seniors?
6: I think we've always had good juniors. You know, you can go back to. To, you know when Tim Henman was in the old Slater squad, and he was probably like number four or five in that in that group. He, you know James Bailey at that stage won the Australian Junior Open, and you know so we've always had good juniors, uh, but they never transfer into senior players. And I think a lot of it is because they play junior tennis for too long. Um, so if you look at the the boys in Spain at 16, pretty much they stop playing junior tennis at 16, and then they go start playing qualifiers for challengers and and satellites and things like that. And they they come out of the junior rankings, whereas you'll find our players are still there participating at under-18 level uh, when the Spanish boys were already playing, qualifying on the tour. And I think that's one of the big differences is that we just don't transfer them from junior to to senior. And half of it, I think, is maybe it's even target-driven to keep saying, you know, the juniors are coming through.
2: Because the LTA say that they have a network of uh, talent scouts and provide more than 300 talent ID days each year. Um, Baroness, that sounds quite impressive, but uh, do we see the results of that?
4: Uh, No, I'm very cynical about that. But what I will say to you, the obvious target, where we have to get in and where we have to get our sleeves rolled up and where we have to get kids playing tennis is from the state primary schools. We've just got to accept the fact that our potential is in the ch- with the children who at the moment aren't getting a start if we give them a start and certainly places like Hackney have done quite a good job on this they have got uh, they have got kids playing on the public courts and they have produced some good players etc etc but that's got to be replicated all over the country, and not in the south of England, but in the north of England and in Scotland. We've got to start making inroads into the children who have never had an opportunity, and then we'll see some difference.
2: Talking about the start, does the LTA need a fresh start? I mean, on a on a cost benefit analysis, should Roger Draper be in his job?
4: <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I don't know. We did ask him, you know, in the, in our inquiry, how much he earned. And he said that that was an inappropriate question. I don't know why. We were in the House of Lords. We can ask anything we like there. We never did get to the bottom of it. Rumour has it he's earning certainly about four times what the Prime Minister's earning. But I don't know about that because um, there's no transparency.
2: I mean, just uh, before we go, um, course, one of the issues here is that uh, as a nation, we're almost kind of resigned to not doing well now, aren't we? And so you don't always get that, that groundswell of, of pressure to make the LTA do well in a way in a way we're comfortable with adversity aren't we how, how do we change that
7: well there's a sense in which we um I, i'm not sure if that's entirely true there is there is an awful lot of pressure particularly around this time of year normally after sort of day 1 2 or 3 of of wimbledon when uh, almost all our players have crashed out i mean there is there is the pressure there and there, these questions are asked every year and it does become a bit like groundhog day um i think that thing that lets tennis get away with it if you like whereas it doesn't happen in other sports is the fact that the spotlight probably only falls on it once a year and that they don't have that relentless pressure at the top end all the rest of the time but there's no doubt that you know kind of a um, one Grand Slam win for Andy Murray you know rightly or wrongly would probably remove a lot of these questions at least from the sort of public mind for the time being Um, but that shouldn't stop the pressure building beneath that and making sure that the um the the grassroots and the and the base is in place for this extraordinary amount of money that's going into the system every year. I mean most other sports would would kill for that. 30 million pound guaranteed stipend every year.
2: Well, let's look to the omen, shall we because uh, Virginia Wade won uh, the the Wimbledon championship in the the Queen's Silver Jubilee and next year's the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. So uh... Yeah, I know it's a long shot, but uh, you you cling to what hope you have, didn't you? Um, While we have our fingers crossed, let me thank my guests Owen Gibson, Baroness Billingham and Adrian Rattenberg. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer of our Garden Focus podcast was uh, Peter Sale, and we might call him our head coach. Have a kind thought for Andy Murray and all those cursed with meeting our expectations over the next fortnights. Um, And in the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye.